I'm Paul Jay. Welcome to the analysis.news. Uh, Andrew Van Wagner has, been, has emailed with me over the years uh, several times on different issues. And he has a Substack column now. And he asked to interview me, and I said, sure. And so this is now going to be his interview. Uh, he mostly works in text. Uh, so you'll find his version of the interview on his Substack. But uh, he's going to say a few words about who he is and how to find his Substack. And, uh, and then he's taken over the interview. So go ahead, Andrew. Fantastic. So my name's Andrew Van Wagner. I write the Join Activism Substack. And you can find it at join.substack.com. That goes to my personal Substack. So it's a funny URL. And yeah, I write about politics. I also write about science, philosophy, all sorts of other topics, too. And uh, yeah, I'm really excited to uh, interview Paul here and I'll transcribe it into text and Paul will put the video up on his website and it'll be great. So I just wanted to start. First question is simply, uh, Paul, what are the most exciting projects that you're currently working on? Uh, well, the, the, other than the analysis, which people know and I, I find exciting because I get to talk to great brains all the time. Uh, but the other project I'm working on is uh, with Daniel Ellsberg, uh, uh, based on his book, Doomsday Machine, Confessions of a Nuclear War Planner. Uh, we hope to turn this into a four or five part series for one of the major platforms. And I've already done you know, 15, 20 hours of interviews and I'm, I'm about to go back to Berkeley and do some more. Uh, exciting, yes, but also uh, terrifying. And also, I, I don't know if depressing is the word, but it's uh, he has me quite convinced that it's uh, qu quite a miracle that humans are still living on this planet. Uh, his book is about when he worked for Rand Corporation, advising the Pentagon on American nuclear war strategy, uh, something he came to realize and calls institutional madness. And the, uh, the, the, the harrowing tales of how close we have come uh, to blowing the earth up. I shouldn't really say we, because it's uh, the, most of us have no say in the matter. Uh, but the elites, uh, certainly in the, the United States, who have been the principal drivers of nuclear weapons, and, and, and to a large extent, and this is what Ellsberg discovered, uh, pushed the Soviet Union into a big investment in nuclear weapons. They weren't planning to do it. And it was quite a big lie, one of the big lies of the Cold War. Uh, that the Soviets were way ahead in ICBMs. Uh, Ellsberg found out that wasn't true. So, I mean, I can talk more about it, but uh, I would say it's exciting because I get to work with Ellsberg, one of the great people of our time, and he's a great brain. You know, what was on his way to becoming a Nobel Prize winner in economics before he went into this military strategy and later Pentagon papers. Uh, but as I say, it also... You know, as I say, I'm, it makes me quite convinced that nuclear weapons have to be treated at the same level as climate crisis in terms of an existential threat. It's really a dual threat. Wow. Uh, I think there's a common perception that things aren't as bad as they used to be with nuclear weapons. I mean, we all know that the Cuban Missile Crisis was extremely close. I mean, everyone agrees on that. But people have a perception that it's not as big as a threat of a threat today. Um, what do you make of that? Yeah, that's it, it's 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 as it's as bad as climate denial. It's the same phenomena as as 
climate crisis denial. Uh, it is as dangerous or perhaps more dangerous than it's ever been because at least in the Soviet Union and the United States, as, as batshit crazy as much of the military leadership in the United States was, on the whole, they were rational people and, and did do their best. And in fact, up until now, succeeded not in you know, blowing us up. Uh, but one of the great lessons of the Cuban Missile Crisis is that we came very close to, to being demolished uh, in spite of the fact that Khrushchev and Kennedy were both rational people that didn't want to blow the world up. I don't know if you know the story of the uh, Soviet submarine that was underneath the uh, American ships, uh, but they had, a, they had instructions that if they were ever out of touch with uh, the, uh, Moscow, and if they thought they were under attack by American boats, uh, warships, they should assume a nuclear war had broken out and they were armed with nuclear torpedoes. And the Americans didn't know that one, that the protocol was if they're out of touch with Moscow and if they think they're under attack, the Americans didn't know that it would start a nuclear launch of, as I say, nuclear armed torpedoes. Well, the Americans started dropping depth charges on them. Uh, trying to force them to the surface, thinking it was you know, all relatively harmless. And they broke out the, the documents in the Soviet sub to launch the nuclear uh, torpedoes. And the captain signed off, the uh, deputy in charge, uh, I don't know what his title was, signed off. And it was only the because the admiral, who was also uh, the party, Communist Party representative on the boat, on the sub, uh, because he happened to be on the sub, his signature was required as well because he was actually the ranking officer because he was an admiral. Well, he refused to sign because he just said, well, what if we're, what if we're wrong? Uh, and he actually got shit for it when he went back to Moscow. But there's, there's, there's quite a few examples of how close we've come. And now the, the arsenal of nuclear weapons is getting bigger. The Americans are going to, are in the midst already, and so are the Russians, of spending a trillion dollars over the next 30 years on uh, new weapons. Most of that money is going to be spent in the first 10 years. Uh, the Americans have a whole fleet of uh, Ford-class aircraft carriers that are going to have nuclear-armed weapons. Uh, China now feels very pushed to... Uh, and uh, enhance their nuclear uh, ICBM. Uh, that up until now they've been very modest. Perhaps two, uh, the estimates maybe 200 ICBMs compared to several thousand of the Americans and Russians. But because of the aggressive character of the U.S. policy towards China and this massive new expenditure uh, by the Americans and the Russians, uh, now China's off to the races to try to catch up. So there's a new nuclear arms race on, and the rivalry, the tensions uh, between the United States and China are, are very serious. Uh, there's a section of the American elites, American military, uh, simply don't want to accept a world where there's, at the very least, uh, an equal superpower. But the writing's on the wall that the Chinese economy you know, is likely to get larger than the American. 
and they have, they have all the ability for innovation, including on the military side. So it's a very dangerous situation. All the saber rattling over Taiwan could easily get out of control. Um, and then the other thing that's that that's adds to the danger of all this is the phenomena of nuclear winter, uh, which is if there is a nuclear war, and it doesn't have to be a too big a one to cause nuclear war. Although there's, I don't know, there's any model of a limited nuclear war. Generally, the thinking is that if it breaks out, all all hell breaks out. But a nuclear war between India and Pakistan is enough to create a nuclear winter and, and, and simply enough ash from all the burning cities uh, creates, uh, envelops the earth and essentially wipes out agriculture. And with it, certainly organized human life is, and, and much of larger mammal life as well. So, you know, this idea that it's not as dangerous as it used to be is, is the prevailing idea which is one of the reasons, in some ways, it's more dangerous than at least there used to be massive. And one of the largest protests that ever took place in New York was against nuclear weapons. Now, you, you barely hear anyone raise their voice. There's a little bit of you know, the odd groups here and there, but nothing on a scale that's having much impact. So we're hoping this series with Ellsberg you know, helps to wake people up. And uh, does your series with Ellsberg have a title? Uh, probably a variation on his book. Uh, probably Doomsday Machine, The Confessions of Daniel Ellsberg, perhaps, something like that. Because, you know, Daniel was a real cold warrior uh, when he joined Rand Corporation. And, his, and was very involved in developing a nuclear war strategy for the United States. Uh, he never was in favor of first strike. Uh, which was the American and, and still the American nuclear war strategy, that if uh, the conventional war breaks out, at the time it was with Russia, but it's also, uh, he thinks, with China, if it reaches a point where the American uh, conventional uh, armies look like they're going to lose, uh, that the strategy is for strife. And it's insane. Uh, you know, with nuclear winter, there doesn't need to be a second strike to demolish human life. Uh, one, one, the first strike's enough with nuclear winter. And um, do you know on which platform your series with Ellsberg will be released? No, we haven't made a deal yet. We're, we're talking to a few of the bigger streaming services and, you know, cable channels. And, uh, there's interest, uh, but we, we haven't got to that point yet. Apparently, Donald Trump shredded some longstanding nuclear weapons treaties. What effect did that have? And uh, do you know if the Biden administration will reinstate those treaties? Well, they did reinstate, I guess it's called START II. Uh, they did that very soon after Biden was inaugurated. Uh, but there's a, a crying need for a new round of, of treaties that has to also include China and there has to be honesty about who has nuclear weapons. You know, it's just ridiculous that this narrative continues that Israel doesn't have nuclear weapons. Everybody knows it does. Uh, even Jimmy Carter came out and said Israel has nuclear weapons, but they it's still part of the ridiculousness of the narrative about Israel that they don't. Uh, there has to be a, a new round of treaties, certainly amongst 
the big three, but also all the other nuclear powers, including France and the UK, uh, Pakistan, India, Israel. Uh, there has to be serious uh, reduction. Uh, the, the, the thing that the message of Ellsberg is that the, this massive numbers of weapons has very little to do with deterrence, especially when you're talking at the levels of the United States and Russia, especially in ICBMs. Uh, ICBMs, he says, and he's not the only one, a lot of experts on this say, are actually kind of useless when it comes to being a real deterrent. Because more or less, the big powers know how to find each other's ICBMs. And so they become targets. Uh, the effective deterrent is really from nuclear submarines. And, uh, and, and, and there's no need for these kinds of numbers because there's no defense anyway. Uh, and, and again, with nuclear winter, so a far, far more modest amount, uh, you know, probably under 100 or something. It could even be, you know, 10 or 15, you know, assuming one accepts the logic of the need for nuclear deterrence. And, and um, while it's so dangerous that I would think the logic is there shouldn't be any, um, that's, and Ellsberg thinks this too, he's persuaded me. It's an unwinnable position in today's geopolitics to think you could get to a point of zero. Uh, but the logic, if you're serious about deterrence, then get it down to a number that that's at least mitigates the danger of accidental nuclear war. Uh, and that's, that seems you know so logical and rational that it seems beyond belief that isn't the policy, but you don't make money out of that if that's the policy. If you make weapons and you make nuclear weapons and you make defense systems and all the paraphernalia that goes with that, and it's not just the American military industrial financial complex that makes a lot of money out of nuclear weapons, it's also the Russian military industrial complex and a growing Chinese. Uh, I was seeing recently of uh, the 15 largest manufac arms manufacturers in the world, five are now Chinese. Uh, so the, uh, now I, I will repeat, it's the Americans that are the more aggressive in all of this. They push Russia and China uh, into more nuclear uh, nuclearization, but the profit motive exists amongst them all. And and there, for the sake of money making, these uh, weapons manufacturers and, and in Congress and, and the whole mindset that goes with this culture are, are willing to risk the apocalypse. It's, it's, it's really mind boggling that they must know, if they do know, how close we've come. And they do know that the safeguards are, are are so far from foolproof, um, and they continue to do it. It's it's it's, it's maybe I mean other than climate, but th there's probably no better example of the complete irrationality of global capitalism. Mm -hmm. So, what exactly is the pathway towards um, major reductions? Because um, the, the issue seems to be that countries need to be able to trust one another. That's the key factor. You can't ratchet down your arsenal 
unless you trust that your enemies will do so at the same time. Is that the, so how can you create a framework in which all these different countries can have some kind of transparent inspection mechanism or some way to actually have that trust? I don't think that's what's stopping it. Uh, Reagan worked it out, uh, you know, with Gorbachev. You know, what was Reagan's famous line, trust but verify? Uh, they have very good intelligence. They, they have ways to inspect. They can use the IAEA to inspect. Uh, I don't think that much goes on that's so secret. Uh, I, I, don't th it's, I don't think it's about trust as much as it is about the uh, momentum, the strength, the power, the logic of massive military expenditures. Uh, and, and, and the United States, even though they haven't used nuclear weapons since uh, Hiroshima and Nagasaki, uh, they do like being able to blackmail people and threaten them. You know, Donald Trump was, and, and he's not the only one, he, he was reflecting uh, very senior military leadership, certainly sections of it, about the use of tactical nuclear weapons. They talk about it in Syria. In all seriousness, and to think, you know, I guess they would only consider using it against a non-nuclear country uh, like Iran, for example. Um, but you know, as soon as you talk like that, God, if you're Iranian, you, you know, you think you better become a nuclear weapons country if, if the Americans are serious about the use of tactical nuclear weapons. I mean, it, there's, there's a logic to the military culture that's driven by the extent of the militarization of the American economy. And that's not new. Uh, that really starts with World War I. It, it takes a, an enormous leap in World War II. And, uh, and after World War II, uh, the American economy, which had been in deep depression in the 1930s, uh, the, the, it was the while the uh, New Deal uh, and the spending in the New Deal helped alleviate the Depression to some extent, it was really the spending on war uh, that became the real stimulus. And, and they decided to keep that kind of stimulus going. Uh, they didn't know what would happen with the American economy without massive military expenditure. So they, they you know, developed this Cold War uh, based on lie, complete lies. And this is this was the thing about Doomsday Machine, the book of Ellsberg that attracted me so much to it, is that he started off as a Cold Warrior, and then he started to find out that this, uh, in the 59, 1959 and 60, when Kennedy and others were talking about a missile gap, and the American Air Force, uh, the Strategic Air Command, we're saying the Soviets had a thousand ICBMs and the Americans only had something like maybe 200. And that the uh, Soviets were getting ready for a first strike to blackmail the United States. Well, as Ellsberg found out when the U-2 spy plane started flying, uh, he found out that they actually had discovered how many ICBMs the Soviet Union actually had. It was four, not a thousand. Four. One, two, three, four. And it was the United States that actually had the first strike capability. But they used that propaganda, as well as the idea that the Soviet Union was getting ready to invade Western Europe, was total bullshit. Uh, the Soviet Union was always in a defensive posture and always feared 
uh, a first strike uh, from the United States and Curtis LeMay, who was the uh, guy that dropped the atomic weapons on Japan as well as led the firebombing of Japan and, and others around him. Who, he was at the you know head of the strategic, strategic Air Command for quite a while and his number two, Powell, who took over from him. Uh, these guys wanted the first strike. Um, these guys wanted to invade Cuba during the Cuban Missile Crisis. Uh, a section of the military has always thought that the only long-term way to maintain American dominance is through annihilation of any major power that threatens to become an equal. So, to, but the roots of this, and this is why it's a it's a it's a complex process. It's not just about you know arms companies that want to make money. Uh, it's a it's a process of how American capitalism has developed. Uh, and two pro pro processes at the same time, financialization and militarization. And they go hand in hand. The growing strength of the banking sector and the financial sector were uh, certainly coming out of World War I and then especially after World War II, the financial sector becomes absolutely dominant to the extent that now the arms companies are primarily owned by the financial sector. You can't really divide these as, as like separate sectors of the economy. Uh, if you go look at who owns the ma major shares of Lockheed Martin and Boeing and you go Raytheon, you go through it, uh, the majority of shares are owned by financial institutions of one kind or another with the big index funds like BlackRock, Vanguard and State Street. Uh, the three of them and some of the other uh, index funds, asset management companies, uh, amongst them probably control the majority of the voting shares. But if they don't, the other banks in with them do. Uh, and, and just to add, I have an article on my website about this, but it's that same group of financial institutions uh, not only own the arms manufacturers, not only own uh, who makes nuclear weapons. Uh, they also own the majority of the media. Uh, in fact, all the major media, with the exception of the Washington Post, which is owned by Bezos, uh, Bloomberg, which is privately owned by Bloomberg, but like the New York Times is 93% owned by financial institutions. Uh, and it goes on and on. The same institutions own fossil fuel companies and, and, and you know, have dominant positions in just about everything on the stock market. Uh, so this this uh, this process of how capitalism developed uh, because of you know historical and geographical reasons, the United States emerges from World War II as the, you know the only super big power still standing, not destroyed by the war. You know, the Brits are, you know, demolished. The, the Soviet Union is badly damaged. Germany is, you know, demolished. So, so it creates enormous opportunity uh, for the United States. Um, and just to sort of cut to something very recent, uh, you know, the situation in Afghanistan, uh, the roots of that 
are found in Roosevelt's deal with Ibn Saad in 1945. Uh, after, when, when it becomes clear that the uh, United States is emerging as the global hegemon, uh, Roosevelt makes a deal with the Saudi royal family. The reason I'm telling this story is not just because of what's recently happening in Afghanistan, but it's not, it's not an evil empire, the United States. It's the way global capitalism works. They see an opportunity, they take it. You know, it's true for a small business, a big corporation, and a state. And if that state has the opportunity to become the global hegemon, it takes it. I mean, if Canada had a chance to be the global hegemon, they jump at it. So they think, you know, because of geography, history, population, we can be a junior partner to the global hegemon, and so they take that. But the deal with Ibn Saud and the Saud royal family, you can draw a direct line to the Al-Qaeda, Bin Laden, the Taliban. So, the problem with nuclear weapons is the American military is convinced and enough of the elites are convinced that part of their global dominance depends on nuclear weapon dominance. It's insane because you can't use them without destroying yourself. But there's money to be made in it. And this insane logic uh, somehow prevails. I don't know. I, 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 I can't understand the mindset that you would risk annihilation. It's strange because shouldn't one submarine or a couple submarines have ample deterrence against any country? Yeah. Maybe five, ten. I don't know. Yeah, it doesn't take very much. I mean, part of it is the Pentagon doesn't want to accept the concept of nuclear winter. It's very much like climate denial. But the uh, leading climate scientists are, have, you know, as much as one can prove it without blowing the world up to find out. And the way they've examined it is they've looked at what happened to climate. Uh, after the fire bombings in Germany and Japan, and and they looked at what happens when you volcanoes, you know, when you get massive amount of ash. And American nuclear war plans call for uh, demolishing every major city in Russia and China. Uh, and you know, it's not like they're not going to fire back. I mean, the radiation is going to kill most of the northern hemisphere anyway. Uh, it's an ins- it's it's the ultimate insanity of a system that, at its heart, ha- has reached the point of complete irrationality. The climate crisis is going to wipe out global capitalism. 
Yeah, maybe rich people think they'll be okay you know, for one generation, two. But it won't be long before most of the global south is uninhabitable. So where do these millions of people go? North. To countries that are also going to become uninhabitable. Like capitalism was a rational system for many, for you know, a few hundred years. It was very rational for the, you know, capitalism was a necessary, natural, you could say, development out of feudalism. It was vigorous, it was, it was resilient, it was it embraced science, uh, innovation. Uh, you know, of course, it had horrible, always uh, horrible aspects to it that always depended on its growth, on the plunder of Asia, Africa, and Latin America, on modern slavery in the United States and other places. But still, there was a certain sense that capitalism you know, was the next sort of stage for humanity. Uh, but we've reached a point now where the, the irrationality of capitalism is such that because of climate, and I would say because of nuclear weapons, uh, but if you just take climate, the system itself is not going to survive this. But the profit-making uh, imperative is such that even though they know what's coming, even though they know what has to be done, uh, they simply won't take the measures, at least so far, that are necessary. Are countries so tied together economically that there's another form of mutually assured destruction in a way? Because if the United States was nuked, I mean, what would happen to the global economy? Even if Russia was nuked, if, if any major country was nuked, what would happen to the global economy? Well, it's, I, I don't think you can frame the question that way. Because if nukes begin, there is no global economy. There's no humans. Organized human society ends with nuclear war. There's no limited nuclear war. Because of the nuclear winter? Well, because you can't control it. I mean, most of the military strategists, people I've talked to in the literature, they all think that it just, once it breaks out, you just can't stop it. It has its own logic. Uh, that, you know, once stuff starts, starts flying, certainly the American war strategy is you have to try to wipe your enemy completely out in order to have any chance of averting a second strike. Uh, nobody, frankly, believes there'll be a first strike except anyone by the Americans and the Russians, the Chinese. I mean, no, they have nothing to benefit by it. A first strike. The Americans certainly have a massive second strike capability. And there's nothing in it for them. And there's really nothing in it for the Americans either. So I, I doubt there's some, you know, this would happen in a planned, organized way. But shit happens. Like, what are the Americans going to do if, if there's uh, a real confrontation over Taiwan? And the Americans, uh, you know, have a president that thinks mostly because of domestic politics, they're going to look tough. They're going to send an aircraft carrier and they're going to tell the Chinese to back down. 
Well, the Chinese won't back down because they have their own nationalist and domestic public opinion and, 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 and military culture as well. So what happens if they sink a, a, an aircraft carrier? Well, do the Americans just back off? I mean, it's, 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 it's nuts. The American, you know, any rational mind would say the Americans will never go to war with China over Taiwan. They can huff and puff, but are they going to risk annihilation? But like I say, like I, I, I was one that was completely convinced the Americans would not invade Iraq. Every person that knew the situation said it would be a disaster, of course, for the Iraqi people first and most, but it would be a, a disaster for the Americans that there's no way they're going to control the outcome of Iraq after the invasion. Oh, no, no, it's going to be a cakewalk. I, you know, I, I do this show called Reality Asserts Itself, and it came from an interview this guy did. I, Susskind, I think, was the author. Yeah, people think it was Rumsfeld, but he never said who it was with. But he says to a senior uh, Bush Cheney official, uh, everyone says this is going to be a disaster invading Iraq, that you guys just aren't being realistic about Iraq. And the answer was, we're America. We make our own reality. Well, actually, they didn't. And, and you know, Iran probably has more influence now in Iraq than the Americans do. China has probably got more of the oil than the Americans do. So even... You know, the reason Obama opposed the, the Iraq war, because he said it was stupid and he was right. It wasn't that he was, you know, against wars or empire. Uh, yeah. But I didn't think because of all those reasons that they would invade Iraq. But, you know, the, you can't underestimate the power of irrationality, banality. Like, you know, they didn't control the outcome of Iraq, but boy, did they military, industrial complex, and the Halliburtons of this world, did they ever make a lot of money out of the invasion of Iraq? So maybe it turned out to be a geopolitical mess for the Americans, but there were shitloads of money made out of it. Uh, you know, I was just reading today about a woman named uh, Bunny Greenhouse. She was in the contracts section of the Pentagon. And she blew the whistle on the Halliburton contract, uh, to, which was uh, signed you know, not long after Cheney had left Halliburton. A no-bid contract for $7 billion to restructure the Iraqi oil business, oil industry, after the invasion. This was just shortly before. Uh, you know, Cheney, we know, had uh, stock options, and who knows how else he got paid off he he had a big severance payment. Um, you, know, you know, I interviewed Larry Wilkerson a lot, who you know, who worked with um, Colin Powell, and this was when the Iraq thing was what really opened his eyes. How much of it was just about straightforward money making? It wasn't even great strategic thinking. It was just like, whoa, what an opportunity to make money! All right, thanks so much, everyone, for joining us, and I hope you enjoyed the interview. Mm -hmm.